Welcome to episode two of Double Reel, the nerdy amateur film podcast. Like many sequels, this follow-up episode is bigger with better technical resources, but basically just a retread of the first instalment. The good news is that unlike other episode twos I could mention, there's no Hayden Christensen. Well, hardly any Hayden Christensen anyway. My name's James Adamson, and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. You can find me on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to my profile. Welcome to give me feedback on the podcast, or your own thoughts on the films I discussed, or any other film-related thoughts you feel like sharing. Like the first episode, this is going to be like a monthly magazine podcast, with a few different features for you to get your teeth into. But there are a few changes from the first episode, which I hope will give my small but perfectly formed audience an even better experience. Gone is the annoying squeaky chair, and the audio should be a bit better overall. I've also divided up the episode into two parts, responding to your feedback that an hour and 20 minutes is a long time to listen to me in a single sitting. Obviously, if you don't mind that long-form episode format, you can listen to them back-to-back and get the full director's cut experience. I've also got a conversation with a special guest for you to look forward to. As with the last episode, there is a smattering of explicit language here and there, so you have been warned. Coming up in this month's podcast... A roundup of what I watched this month in amongst the hectic social world of life in lockdown. Looking back at the classic films I've been putting off watching and whether I managed to watch any of them. This month's hidden gem feature is A Scanner Darkly, Richard Linklater's adaptation of the classic Philip K. Dick novel. A conversation with a special guest about our best and worst cinema-going experiences. Our one that got away feature on a film that never got made, which this month is Quentin Tarantino's Silver Surfer. And finally, our remake Hate Watch of the 2003 Desecration of the Italian Job, starring Mark Wahlberg. But first, I've got a few listener messages from the first episode, so let's call this the letters page of this podcast film magazine. It was great to get a response from people who listened, and here's some of what they said. Sort that fucking chair out, was a common refrain. A constructive criticism I've listened to and taken on board. Albe3037 wrote, Loving Mad Max 2. I agree with the comment that by the time you've looked through Prime or Netflix and argued about what to watch, you could have seen a whole film. EVH78 said, Thoroughly enjoyed the podcast and have ordered Blowout on DVD on eBay, which was great to hear that someone was inspired to watch a film I recommended. Good to hear the DVD is available on sale somewhere as I couldn't see it anywhere last month. I Love Horsewill, interesting username, wrote, I stopped listening to go and watch Train to Busan after you mentioned it. Don't worry, I'll be back to listen to the rest. While I've seen too many zombie films to truly appreciate it, I did appreciate the South Korean train system. Absolutely stunning service compared to the UK. Glad that someone else was inspired to give it a watch, and that's a very British response to the film. I am looking forward to the English language remake, where zombies attack a shit bus replacement service. I've also got some more Korean film recommendations from listeners. Mickey V said, Age of Shadows is very accomplished, and Shakerman said, One Korean film I can't recommend enough that many uh, people may not have seen is I Saw the Devil. I've added both those to my watch list, so thanks for those. Uh, And N.Y. Mackham wrote, Punch Drunk Love, watch it tonight. It's not some worthy arthouse film you have to be in the right mood for. It's a strange dream of a film, part love story and part quirky character study. I have stopped the car to tell you this. Thanks for the recommendation, and thank you also for observing hands-free safety rules. Now for a roundup of my month in film. It's not a review of all the films that came out this month as I don't get to see everything, or of all the film news as you have the internet for that. It's just what's been going on with me and what films I've been able to fit in while life happens all around. Having said that, there is some actual movie news to discuss. I've got tickets booked to go into the cinema next month, which is very exciting. It's a drive-in cinema near me, so it's all social distancing compliant, and they're showing Rocketman, which I haven't seen. And I'll be able to tell you all about that in the next episode. Uh, now, my roundup of the films I've watched this month, um, as discussed last month, is a case of what I've been able to watch, what I watched on TV, what I was able to fit in, and everything else. And the first thing I caught up with was The American. It's a George Clooney film. I watched this because it was more or less the first thing that came up when I went on Netflix looking for something to watch. And to try and get past the whole spend longer browsing through films than it would take just to watch a film problem, I just went for it. I didn't know a lot about it other than it was George Clooney as an assassin or hitman. Uh, as it turned out, it was one of those classic hitman character studies. 
It starts with a job that goes wrong, shows how his life makes it impossible to maintain personal relationships, and then follows him on another job and the twists, turns, and double crosses that follow. Um, it reminded me of an old film called Le Samurai, which has the same sort of somber, restrained style and follows a hitman around on his uh, you know, daily life and job. I definitely enjoyed it, although I'm a sucker for an assassin or hitman film. Maybe not everyone loves them as much as I do. It's interesting how many different ways people have found to tell the story around this basic idea, uh, and it's inspired me to come up with a quick top 10 hitman assassin films, which are quite varied in style. In no particular order, I suggest you try and check out La Femme Nikita, Leon, Le Samurai, Gross Point Blank, Collateral, In Bruges, John Woo's The Killer, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, Preetzi's Honor, and Day of the Jackal. Next I watched Miss Sloan. It's a political drama about a ruthless Washington lobbyist who is employed by an ethical lobbying company to help get a law passed for more gun control in the US. Jessica Chastain stars in it and she's always good so I recorded it off the TV. When I started watching it I saw it was directed by John Madden and I expected the worst given he was responsible for Shakespeare in Love and Captain Crowley's Mandolin which I really didn't like but it was actually pretty good. It reminded me of a film uh, Jessica Chastain did about a year later called Molly's Game. In both she plays these kind of complex driven characters although they're quite different personalities in other ways. I preferred Molly's Game I think but this was good and had a lot of twists and turns in the story. It was kind of sweet to watch a film from 2016 which imagined a it might be possible to introduce gun control laws and b anyone gives a shit about ethics in American politics. Fast forward to 2020 when things have got pretty weird over there, and Miss Sloan feels like a period piece set in a distant past we only dimly remember. I also watched a Korean gangster film called New World. It's about an increasingly powerful criminal gang that's starting to resemble a large corporation. The head of the organisation is killed in what seems like a road accident, and a power struggle ensues among the rivals to succeed him. The police are running an operation, the New World of the title, to undermine the organisation, which includes getting the person they prefer to win the battle for the throne. The cast included Choi Min-sik and Kim Byung-ok, who were both in Old Boy and Lady Vengeance that I discussed last month. It borrows a plotline from a great Hong Kong film called Infernal Affairs, in which the police have an officer who's been undercover posing as a gangster for almost 10 years. Infernal Affairs, you may be aware, was remade as The Departed by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Now that threw me off a bit. It had me wondering, is this common in East Asian law enforcement, that multiple films would have it as a storyline? But basically, they've just borrowed that plotline. Now, the rest of it's very different, though. Um, I did enjoy it. It's quite restrained in terms of action and violence, although it has its moments, as all Korean films tend to do. Uh, and it's more about the power moves between the different players and the way the police have to be quite ruthless and treacherous themselves to fight against gangsters this powerful. And it pays off well at the end as well. I recommend it. Um, I wasn't sure whether to include these because I watched kind of some of, but not all of, Citizen Kane and Twelve Monkeys. Citizen Kane was because it was just starting on TV and we were watching, and my wife said, isn't that meant to be one of the best films ever made? Um, and I responded that it you know, kind of is, but it's probably not a film everyone goes back to over and over. I thought it'd be interesting to watch the opening scene with her, just because of how famous it is, see what she think of it. And even though she's not a big fan of black and white films, we ended up watching a fair bit of the film until Baby Changing Duties took over. Maybe she'll be tempted to watch it all the way through sometime. Twelve Monkeys was similar, it just happened to be on, and I ended up watching it a fair bit. But it was getting late, and Brad Pitt's twitchy, trying-too-hard performance started to get on my nerves. If you watch him in his more recent films, you'll see he's come a long way since then. I also watched Jurassic Park in the kitchen while cooking, which is no doubt exactly how Spielberg intended his film to be watched. Um, I also sat down to watch Arrival this month. I think this is the first time I've watched it since I saw it in the cinema. Um, I loved it at the time, and I, I think it still holds up. I've spoken to some fellow sci-fi fans who weren't so keen, but I absolutely bought into the main idea, which I think you need to if you're going to stay the course on this film. And it was really well done, as per usual, for Denny Villeneuve. I'm very excited about his version of Dune, which is hopefully coming out soon. LA Story was another one I watched. I hadn't watched this in years, and it's suddenly being repeated on one of the comedy channels on TV. It really took me back. Um, the LA Story is about really you know, media people uh, in the 90s, um, and it is a very 90s film, but it managed not to be as cheesy and irritating as some of that touchy-feely stuff can be from back then. It just catches the tail end of Steve Martin's peak, and he's brilliant. And it has some kind of magic realism elements that still kind of hold up, I would say. Definitely enjoyed it, and it still seems to be being um, repeated on TV, so if you see it, I'd definitely recommend you tune in. Then I watched The Warrior. Film 4 put this on as a tribute to Irfan Khan, who died recently. He's a great loss, by the way, and only 53, which is no age. 
Uh, it's made in about 2001. I knew about it before and was kind of intrigued at the idea and the fact that it was directed by Asif Kapadia, the British Indian director. He now mostly does documentaries like Senna and the Amy Winehouse one. So I recorded it to watch. In the intervening period, Asif Kapadia went on Kermod and Mayo and gave an interview about it and said he was influenced by Japanese cinema, people like Kurosawa. Now that definitely got me watching it. So I sat down to watch it and I would say add to Japanese cinema Sergio Leone westerns which are an obvious influence on this film. I really liked it. It's got that kind of central character and backstory which is straight out of Kurosawa and some shots and landscape scenes which you'd be familiar with from Japanese cinema. Some lovely framing and you know mountains in the background and everything. You combine that with a kind of Sergio Leone pace and it plays out like a, a western except set in the Indian mountains. That was interesting to see those kinds of samurai, lone cowboy uh, storylines play out in a historical Indian setting. It's very low-key and small-scale and takes its time laying out the story, but I thought it worked really well. It has kind of an air of mystery to it, as it doesn't entirely explain the motivations of the characters and makes you fill in the gaps yourself while you're watching. And the way it plays out and some of the Indian spiritual elements really kind of packed a punch by the end, quite an emotional um, ending. It's worth a watch as so long as you know you're not getting an action film. Speaking of action films, I also watched Captain America Civil War. My wife wanted to watch this as she wasn't sure if she'd seen it. I should explain, she has a tendency to forget films altogether after she's watched them. So when she watches it again, it's like a new film. I'm kind of jealous of that as I wouldn't mind watching certain films for the first time all over again, like maybe Blade Runner or something really impressive like that. My wife has near-perfect memory recall of TV shows she's watched, so I've no idea why films don't stick in her mind. Maybe it's the aspect ratio. Anyway, Captain America Civil War was the usual good stuff from Marvel, well-made and acted. It was the first sight of the new Spider-Man, who I think is very good. I wouldn't say it was my favourite MCU film, but it moved the story along nicely and uh, built up towards the big Avengers showdowns that we all know about now. Uh, Central Intelligence was another film I watched on TV. This was a bit of that cinematic comfort food I was talking about in the last episode. It was nice, undemanding viewing, and The Rock and Kevin Hart are very watchable. But it wasn't particularly notable or memorable as a film, I would say. Kevin Hart plays a bloke who's only got a regular, normal job, despite seeming to be destined for great things when he left school. He's not very happy about that. He suddenly finds himself in the usual action-comedy spy story when, just before the big school reunion, an old classmate gets in touch and turns out to be in the CIA and needs his help. You could fill in the rest of the story yourself, but it was quite enjoyable, past the time. Um, Lego Batman is another one I watched. It was kind of on in the background while I was doing something else. I'd seen it a couple of times before, but it, it's so good that I did end up stopping what I was doing and watching it to the end. It's not as good as the first Lego movie, but still very good stuff. Uh, and finally, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Tarantino's latest. This was our movie night film. My wife and I sat down to watch this on Blu-ray. I wouldn't say my wife was the biggest Tarantino fan, but she found it in her heart to watch one of his films that's got both Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in it. I watched this in the cinema, I remember enjoying it, but thinking it was too long, and a bit overindulgent in its nostalgia trip to the 60s. On re-watching, I, I kind of reconsidered it a bit. I kind of felt, yeah, you could have cut half an hour out, and it spent a lot of time in incidental detail, but I really didn't mind that, and I did enjoy spending that extra time in the world of the film. I have to admire Tarantino's knack for drawing out a story but still making it really watchable and the time still passing really quickly. Um, looking back at this, it's how I imagine it would have been if uh, Coppola had released a full Redux version of Apocalypse Now as his original theatrical version and not cut anything out. So as I mentioned on the opening episode, I am conscious of the number of times I just watch the films that are served up repeatedly on TV when I could be digging into various classics and great highly recommended films from my DVD shelf and watch list. The longer I leave it, the more of a mental block I can get about a film I should have watched. By way of putting that right, I crossed Lady Vengeance off the list last month and talked about it on the podcast. The other films on my list of classics I should be watching, you may recall, were Das Boot, extended version. I still haven't worked out if this should be filed under D or B in my collection, and I'm still perturbed by that. Wages of Fear and Les Diaboliques, two black and white subtitle classics I will no doubt have to find time to watch on my own. David Cronenberg's Crash, where I will have to carefully explain that I'm not a weirdo for watching this, and there's a genuine point to, well, everything on the screen. Punch Drunk Love, the Paul Thomas Anderson classic I've had on my shelf for years. And Train to Busan, the Korean zombie film I haven't got round to. 
Now, since I crossed one off last month, I've added a few to try and motivate me to watch more of them. So I've added Hell or High Water, a heist film starring Jeff Bridges that comes highly rated and is still in the cellophane on my shelf. Let the Right One In, the vampire story with a difference I've been meaning to watch for literally years. And The Assassin, the Chinese uh, historical drama. This is one I have already watched, but to be honest, I wasn't that impressed by it. But a friend convinced me to give it another go, so I've added it to my backlog. So here's what I watched this month. In looking at those classics and what I should pick up next, um, I got a very strong response from at least one person who listened to the previous episode that I absolutely needed to make Punch Drunk Love the next film I see. That gave me the push I needed, so I went on the DVD shelves, picked out the case, and put it next to the TV to remind me to watch it. The next step would be to actually watch it, but first things first. Possibly a week passed of me walking past that DVD case or seeing it when I sat down in front of the TV, but not actually taking the disc out and putting it on. There it was, glaring at me, reminding me of my failure to get it watched, even though I've seen the 40-year-old version multiple times because it's always on TV. It's a good film, to be fair, but at least two of those rewatches were out of pure laziness. In the end, I had my wife to thank. She saw the DVD case on the TV unit and asked about it. I left out the bit about the DVD glowering at me and guilt-tripping me. She doesn't like it when inanimate objects do that. So I just said it's a film I've been meaning to watch. It's supposed to be really good. It's kind of a romantic comedy with a difference and an Adam Sandler film with a difference. Okay, she said, let's watch it. So, Punch Drunk Love. An apparent oddity of the film. Paul Thomas Anderson is known for mainly serious art house films, which have won various awards, combined with Adam Sandler, who's mostly known for lowbrow comedies. But Paul Thomas Anderson is a sincere Adam Sandler fan and genuinely wanted to make a comedy with him. Although he's seen as a serious director, he is a big fan of broad comedies. I listened to an interview once in which he cited the scene in Ace Ventura 2, where the robot rhino gives birth to Jim Carrey, as one of his favourite moments in a film. Uh, it's also worth noting that prior to Punch Drunk Love, some of Adam Sandler's mainstream output had been quite good. He hadn't yet inflicted atrocities like Jack and Jill and Pixels on an unwary public. Paul Thomas Anderson also felt like Sandler's hapless, flawed, everyman screen persona would work well in a romantic comedy. And so they made Punch Drunk Love in about 2001-2002. This is Paul Thomas Anderson's idea of an Adam Sandler film and his idea of a romantic comedy, which means it's basically not like any other Adam Sandler film you've seen or any other rom-com you've seen. It's very much a Paul Thomas Anderson film. You can tell this partly because of the style and atmosphere, which is that kind of dreamlike quality and things happening that don't always make a lot of sense while you're watching them, but do sort of uh, make sense once the whole story has worked itself out. And of course, you can tell it's a Paul Thomas Anderson film because it has Philip Seymour Hoffman and Louis Guzman in the cast. The storyline, if you write it down and look at it, kind of looks like most rom-coms. Adam Sandler hasn't had much luck in love. He's kind of shy and retiring and dividing his time between his job and his family, both of which are stressing him out. And then a chance encounter occurs with a woman played by Emily Watson, and while there's a spark of attraction, they don't immediately hit it off. Through various mishaps, ups and downs, and various shenanigans, they stumble along the not very smooth path to true love, while the audience follows the suspense of the will-they-won't-they storyline. Which is all very standard rom-com stuff. Except, of course, that it's all completely mad. Adam Sandler is a complete misfit, cowed and bullied by his many sisters, while at the same time they worry about him and wish he would find a nice woman to be with. It turns out Emily Watson's character, who's a bit off-kilter herself, isn't just someone he met by chance. She's someone who works with one of his sisters who is trying to set them up on a date. All sorts of strange coincidences occur to push them into uh, each other's path. Sandler's job is a strange and chaotic business selling novelty items, and he himself veers between fits of panic when he can't face anyone and wants to curl up in a ball, and fits of rage where he smashes windows and punches walls. He gets lonely one night before he's really got it together with Emily Watson and calls a telephone sex line, naively giving out a lot of personal information which they use to scam, then blackmail, and then extort money from him. All the while, he obsessively buys up multi-packs of chocolate dessert because they're part of an airline's flight promotion, and he's found a flaw in their offer, which could net him literally millions of free air miles, which is based on a real person, interestingly. Over the course of the story, he comes out of his shell and finds a strength, both mentally and physically, that he didn't realise he had, because he really wants to be with this woman. But the way this happens is not the usual way this happens in romantic comedies. There's a stock character in romantic films, especially romantic comedies, called the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, where a woman in the story exists only as a love interest and is kind of idealised, slightly kooky and weird, but romantically available. 
She has no life or wishes of her own other than to shake up the life of the male love interest and show him how to embrace life and so on. If that conjured up a picture of Zoe Deschanel in your head, you're on the right track. Now, Emily Watson as Lena, the love interest in this film, is not like that. If anything, she's a bit more together and he's the manic pixie. She has her own job, a life that takes her to interesting places and all of that. She's just decided at this point that she's ready for a relationship and lucky him, interested in Adam Sandler's character. It's up to him if he wants to cave in and carry on with the lonely existence he hates or front up and try and have a happy life with a real person who's nice and likes him. In all romantic comedies, there has to be a bumpy ride in the storyline where various problems or personality clashes between the characters get in the way and our lovers only get together in the final act. Punch Drunk Love is a refreshing spin on this idea because the various scrapes the couple get into are just so wild and different from what you normally get. There's a lot of fun to be had with Adam Sandler trying to explain that he would love to meet her in Hawaii, he just needs to buy some more chocolate pudding first or trying to cover up the fact that their date is being disrupted because he's being menaced by blackmailers. Emily Watson's character is a bit strange as well, although saying any more than that would be a bit of a plot spoiler. All of which is a change from the tedium of watching people spend two hours not getting together, even though they're obviously perfect and meant for each other. I mean, who genuinely isn't sure that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are going to get together in the end of their films? In the romantic comedies they did together, they had to throw in some pretty wild plot contrivances to keep them apart. They live on opposite sides of the country. They only romance each other online and don't know they are bitter rivals in real life. Tom's about to be thrown into a volcano. In this film, while the storyline itself is a bit crazy, it's quite believable that the characters are having trouble getting their romance going, and that makes you end up rooting for them. There's a great scene where Emily Watson turns up and clearly wants Adam Sandler to ask her out, while his workplace is going nuts around him, and the music and setup of the scene are like a thriller where something terrifying is happening to the main character. It's actually gripping to wonder if he's going to be able to get over his anxiety and ask her if she'd like to go out with him. And when he does, you might as well have been watching Indiana Jones diving out of the way of the rolling boulder in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's another common problem of romantic comedies that Punch Drunk Love does a nice job avoiding. The demands of the basic plotline of rom-com seems to endorse all sorts of inappropriate behaviour, like characters persistently asking someone out or throwing themselves at someone who has said several times they're not interested, being rude and unpleasant to people you're attracted to just so the romance doesn't blossom until Act 3. All of this encourages people to assume that someone acting like they're not interested means that they really are, which is not good. Or that someone hurting you or treating you badly must have some underlying storyline reason or plot twist that means you should accept it. Not to mention all the rom-coms where people lie, deceive, spy on each other or resort to actual stalking. The twist of this film is that there is some behaviour here that you would say is not appropriate, but you wouldn't believe for one second that watching it is normal or that the film's endorsing it. Adam Sandler, for example, is clearly struggling mentally and needs to sort his life out. In context, what it shows you is that a lot of people are basically damaged and a bit weird and are trying to be better. So, safe to say I really enjoyed this. It's on a smaller scale than a lot of other Paul Thomas Anderson films and certainly shorter, but it has a lot of the same style and enjoyable Paul Thomas Anderson touches, like his use of music and colour and the way it follows and gets inside the head of some slightly strange people. I still think Magnolia is his best film, closely followed by The Master and Boogie Nights, but this is top-notch as well. Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the seedy owner of the telephone sex line with a kind of angry creepiness that he did better than anyone. Because of the strange start of the film and the way not everything ha that happens in the film is explained, there's a few different theories about this film. One is that it's a kind of Superman origin story, partly because Sandler is constantly wearing a blue suit and Emily Watson is always in red, and a few other things like that. There's also a theory that he's an alien and she's come from his home planet to take him back. Now, I don't know if these are intentional. Um, it's understandable for people to speculate about uh, a film like this because there's so much in there that's unexplained and a bit strange. But personally, I was happy enough to see it just as what it claimed to be, a strange romantic comedy about a strange romance. Adam Sandler is really good and shows why Mark Kermode is always going on about this film and saying he should do more stuff like this and less of the crap he churns out. He's recently repeated the trick in Uncut Gems, uh, an atypical performance for Adam Sandler and a different kind of film that had everyone raving about how good he is. 
It also worked for me as the study of an awkward, uncomfortable man finding love right when his life is a mess. He doesn't quite understand why she's into him, but he doesn't argue because he knows what's good for him. If the relationship is going to work, it'll be because of a combination of him emerging from his cave and trying to be a bit more normal, and the other person in the relationship seeing who he really is and accepting that. And while it's an exaggeration in the way it's played out, I think it's a better representation of what's going on in men's heads about love and relationships than most romantic comedies out there. Now we've got a new slot for the podcast, which we didn't do in the first episode, a conversation about films with a special guest. My special guest for this podcast is James Adamson. Now I'm not interviewing myself, that would be weird. My eldest son is also called James Adamson. Not very original, I know, and not my idea for him to have the same name as me, but there you go. James is 23 and also a big film fan. He doesn't live with me, so we recorded this on Anchor FM, which allows two people to dial into the same recording. The audio is mostly okay, although it doesn't cope that well when both people say something at the same time, or one person reacts or laughs at what the other person is saying, although you should still be able to hear everything that's going on. You will notice that James has a different accent to mine. Do not adjust your device, that's not an issue with the audio. I won't bore you with the details of why he has a Scottish accent and I have an English one, let's just acknowledge it as a fact and move on. In this uh, conversation we talked about our experiences going to the cinema together, best and worst. You'll hear about our best experiences first to close out part one of this month's episode of the podcast. It's continued on part two with our worst experiences. Hopefully you'll enjoy both parts. Uh, We'd like to do this again on future episodes whenever we can fit it into the schedules and have a good topic to talk about. Here's what we discussed this month. So welcome to this new slot on the Double Real podcast, which is an interview with my special guest, James Adamson. Now, don't get confused. My eldest son is also called James Adamson because we're so imaginative about picking names. Um, so welcome, James. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it confuses me. I've been living with it for 23 years. So, so we we agreed, didn't we, that we were going to do a, a session together. We were going to talk about our um, best and worst experiences going to the cinema together. And yeah. I think we're pretty much unanimous on what the worst experience is. So more on that later because there's a whole circle <laughs> around that. Um, but in terms of best, I think like me, you have a few to choose from that you're not quite decided on or, or you know, need to think about. So why don't we go, why don't we go best first? What's your best experience going to the cinema with me? It, it's hard to call this a best experience, this one, but definitely the best film we've seen in the cinema together is 12 Years a Slave. It's, yeah, it's just, it, it blew us away. It's, hard, it's weird to say that it was best experience because it was, you know, a film about a guy, the horrors that guy went through in the, um, in the deep south in the you know, the 1840s and 50s but we were just absolutely gobsmacked when we saw it it was just phenomenal yeah it's a tremendous film I and mean, we ended up seeing it twice together and i saw it one more time uh without you so that's you know i saw it three times what, what i remember is the first time it's just an absolute kick in the head for two hours because the ordeal of someone being enslaved is just absolutely you know horrific to endure and, you know, you're not enduring it, you're watching someone endure it, but even so, it's one of the most intense yeah. experiences. You watch it a second and third time, it's still as powerful, but you, you start to realise what an amazing job they did of the film as well. When that's Steve McQueen's, like, third film, wasn't it? And he he did just such a, an immense job. Uh, you know, just the, the what he shot, the way he shot it, absolute control, it's an absolutely phenomenal piece of work. So... Um, yeah, I mean, definitely that's got to be up there as one of the best best things we went to see. Well, the first first time we saw it, you just you get kind of overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that's just kind of thrown your way. It's, you know, it's this guy, he's a normal free black man in the north, he gets taken down to the south and he's thrown in slavery, he gets whipped, he gets beaten, you know, he watches people get killed and it's horrible. And then the second time you watch it, because I remember, because we're both into our history, the only other film I'd seen at that point close to that era was Gone with the Wind, which... Is, is very embellished, but in that they show this, you know, Southern Belle who's, you know, she's got these wonderful gowns and she lives in this mag- ma- massive mansion, sorry. And yeah. in this, it shows the South, the, the, you know, the deep South of America just, you know, dying. You know, the, the, lots of shots of like the willow trees and, you know, the just everything around them just felt like it was decaying, you know. Even at the point in the film, he has to be swapped out to a different plantation because, you know, the, there's like a, a rot or something in the cotton. But no, it, it was just a stunning Where's that, that river or that creek near them? And it's just covered in like green algae. It's like the whole place has got a disease. 
Yeah, because you do you do find with those kind of films that they kind of like kind of get caught up in the, just like the kind of grandeur of it all. And this one, the, this film had yeah. nothing like that. It was just this is how it was, and this is how terrible this place. Um, yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's a, that's a I think that's a deliberate choice by Stephen Queen to shoot it that way. I think you can either take it as like literally the South was dying at the time, and ec- economically slavery for tobacco and cotton was not. Um, really making that many people rich and there was a lot of poverty and, you know, the, the, the North was much more industrialised. So you can take it as literally what the South was like or you can take it as slavery is a disease and this this country has got a disease and you can see it, like, hanging off the branches of trees even. Um, but the, di- the director made the choice. I mean, I personally think what he did there is his command of what he put on screen is up there with Kubrick, no question. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. I think he was hard done not to win Best Director, I think. I don't, know, I don't want to butcher his name, but Chouette Leggio for he was uh, hard done by to not win the Oscar that year. A great score from Hans Zimmer as well, who I didn't realise did it till pretty recently. But yeah, yeah, it's a masterpiece. It was Hans Zimmer's brilliant at making his music a bit of film in a way that almost no one else can, isn't he? Yeah, but he also does it like it's quite not simple, but it's like it's not too much going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think Leggio four was a bit unfortunate because that that was just Matty McConaughey's year, wasn't it? No, that was just the peak of the reconnaissance, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was—it's just brilliant, and it's—it's it's a tough film. It's a tough film to watch, but you, you should watch it because it's—it's a—it's a document, like you say, a realistic document of a time that isn't really paralleled anywhere else. Yeah, um, and when you do, you realise there's little things like you know the way the dialogue. I assume a lot of that dialogue's lifted from the book, and I again didn't notice it the first time because I'm just hanging on for dear life. But like the third time, there's dialogue between characters, and I'm like, wow, that that really sounds like the speech patterns from the 19th century. That feels like mm. you're getting to hear how people really spoke back then. There's just so many things in there. It's just so brilliantly put together. Little touches, yeah. He's, he's very good at that. Steve McQueen. But yeah, it's, it's, it is the best film we've seen in the cinema at the same time. It's not like, compared to some of the other stuff we've got on this list, it's not like a film where I was kind of like, we didn't walk out of it and we were like, oh yeah, that was great. You know, like it was, you know, like you probably enjoy it. Like you, you, come, you come out of seeing, say, the, you know, the latest Avengers and you're like, wow, that was, you know, the CGI, etc., etc. You're not blown away by that per se. And it's not like an enjoyable experience, but it is just, whew, yeah. You feel exhausted. Well, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing. Like, the experience of going to a cinema can be great for a number of different reasons. I mean, like back in 1989, when I'm a teenager at school, but me and a bunch of friends went to see Roadhouse together. And I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to pretend that Roadhouse is as good as film. It's like we had a good time that day because that film is <laughs> mental, and we just had such yeah, a bunch in it. But you know, yeah, it's, it's a different experience. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I have very fond memories of my first experience taking you to the cinema, you know, because my dad took me to my first ever cinema um, screening. I, I saw Star Wars when I was four. So I remember it was just after your sister was born. And I remember thinking, right, let's get, I wanted to take you to a film. And I took you to see Toy Story 2. And I have great memories of that. I'm not sure you even remember that at all, going to see that. Um, I remember that cinema specifically. It was like that kind of old building, you know, like a kind of like a grand old Opry, you know, one of those buildings. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, but I don't, I, rem- I obviously remember the film Toy Story 2. I, I mean, I have got, you know, quite a, you know, strong memory, but I don't fully remember going. I, I remember the place. We used to go like every Saturday or Sunday for the kids club at the cinema. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's why you remember it because we went quite a few times and I think you remember it yeah. sort of blank. I mean, I've got really vivid memories of going to see Star Wars when I was four, but then I've seen that film so many times that my mind could be filling in filling in the memory blanks for me. And I think it's the same for you as you've seen Toy Story enough times. In yeah. Cinema. It's great experience. I mean, I'll tell you what I remember. I remember you were really little. I mean, you were probably three and a bit, maybe three years, three or four months. So really not, you know, really tiny, really thinking about it. And you'd been to see a stage show for kids, like a sooty show or something like that. So you I think I remember that, that. Yeah. You understood the concept of sitting in chairs and there being a curtain and there's going to be something behind a curtain. And I remember you saying, Dad, what, what show are we watching today? And I think that was your reference point. And then the curtain drew back and it was a film and it was a whole new thing. And there was a trailer for that Tarzan film they did, which looked quite good. And there was a trailer for Disney's Dinosaur, which although it's a an average film, the trailer shows the one good sequence in it, which is the the, 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 yeah, the, the, the herbivore dinosaurs being chased by predators and that egg being picked up and dropped over a waterfall. And I remember you gripping my arm because the predators were chasing the people and that looked quite intimidating. And then just letting go and watching the screens as the, the aerial shots of, of the egg were there. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, this is great. You're buying into the experience. Unfortunately, 
don't remember much more than that from the day. But I'm glad I'm glad you got to see a good film on your first first trip, you know? Yeah, same. Nothing not not anything, you know, crap. But I think that's different nowadays. I don't know if it's just because I've not fallen out of love with the cinema, but it just seemed like they churn out a lot of films that just aren't very good. Like Yeah, I know. I mean it's all, especially when there's all these great Netflix series and stuff. It's almost like there's better yeah. work happening there. Well, that's the thing. Like, I don't know if it's just me getting older, but I'm glad I went to see Toy Story 2 because I've got another Pixar film on this list. We went to see um, Finding Nemo together. Yeah. Um, and obviously, that's a good film. You could put so many um, Pixar films from there. We went to see Monsters Inc. We went to see Incredibles. Um, yeah, we went. What else? I'm, I'm sure we're missing another one. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we went to see a lot of kids' films. And I think there, there were a lot of great experiences because it was like, it's Saturday. Let's go to the cinema together. And I remember being really excited about going to see, you know, going to see a film just because it was a, a trip a day out in the cinema and everything and I think that's always got fond memories of that in terms of other films we uh, we went to see Dark Knight together when the year that came out so that's pretty awesome yeah that's a, we, we didn't go to see an IMAX though which I think is one thing I regret is not getting to see that in IMAX so I think it would have been that opening scene there with yeah. that Christ. but no I'm yeah, still yeah, yeah, darn it, because that, that was the first serious film that I'd, you know, properly got into. Like, I'd watched films, but as a, as a kid, you watch films differently. But I think I was 11 or 12 when it came out. And it was just like the first, you know, masterpiece of a film I think I've I've seen. It was, yeah. you know, from start to finish, I can't find a fault with that film. I, and I, I like that era for you, because I remember it was probably the year after, maybe, but it was definitely the era that you were starting to watch films for that reason more. Yeah. And we went to see Invictus uh, that Clint Eastwood directed. Now, Invictus is, it's quite good. Um, it, it, you know, it's not going to go down as Eastwood's best film or the best film of that year, but I still really enjoyed it. And I had a big sort of big emotional response to it because of the, the era I lived through. But I yeah. remember really enjoying going to that film because you said you wanted to see this new film that Clint Eastwood would, had directed and it was a new era for you of starting to pick out directors and reasons to go and see films and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, oh, this is great. We're not, to, you know, we're not just going to see the latest cartoon. We're actually starting to watch things yeah. together and really appreciate them. I really are. So although that's not a... I'm going to try and enjoy the film. It's quite funny watching Matt Damon trying to look like a South African. Listen to your country. <laughs> Sally says, oh, so having played rugby, watching that, that's not what rugby matches look like. But, um, but, but My I, only references for South Africa, Africa are that accent and Oscar Pistorius saying, Milady, that's it. <laughs> I have good, good memories of that. Another film I have really good, good memories of that we went to see together was Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. And again, that's another one. We didn't even go and see it in like a particularly massive screen. I think it was that Lee Valley multiplex where it was it was, it was a decent size screen, but not massive. And it, yeah, it was very, very small. I just remember you and me going to see it and there was that great car chase. That doesn't even narrow it down because there's so much. And there was a bit where you and I, after the car chase, looked at each other and breathed out as if we hadn't taken a breath for like four minutes. And I remember thinking, yeah, well, we are in the presence of uh, a terrific cinema experience right there. Yeah, that, it was just, yeah, you have to take a breath in that film. It, I think the thing that's most incredible about it is that it's, you know, almost, I think, 80% of it is, you know, natural scenery. And they mm -hmm. just did some, like, touch-up to make the, was it Namibia? It was definitely somewhere in Africa where they filmed it. And they just did, like, yeah. a touch-up to enhance it. So it's, it's just, it's... I, there's so much to say about that film ironically from a character who doesn't say a lot there is so much to say about that film it's well that's the brilliant of Mad Max he, he doesn't have a lot of li lines of dialogue in Mad Max 2 either yeah so that's why I mean he took Mad Max Fury Road and he basically took all the other films that he'd done and he just said right I'm going to make this the most Mad Max film it's possible to make and he just knocked it out of the park he's 70 years old it's been, been 30 years and everyone's going you're doing another Mad Max film and then why Fucking hell, this is good. Oh, it's just didn't, brilliant. Like, the, they, it didn't do it in 3D either. And yet, I've got memories of like, like tires, burning tires flying up in the air and stuff, and just really, really, um, the visuals like nothing else. Well, yeah, it, it swept up at the Oscars as well, didn't it? Which is incredible for a film like that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, obviously, the, it did really well with the technical awards and everything, but I, it won costume design as well, which is quite cool. Um, because normally they'd give that to a you know a costume drama or something, and I thought it was great that they that it won for that. Um, look, I, I I would I would not have considered it an injustice if, if George Miller had won Best Director and 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 that film had won Best Picture that year. I, I think that absolutely smashed it. 
Yeah, it, it won all of like the typical. It won six. It won. I've just pulled it up now. It's won. It won like editing, production design, costume, makeup, sound, and sound editing. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it it just it just left me speechless because I didn't really. It doesn't really have like it has a structure, but it doesn't have like a, you know like it has. It doesn't really have acts if you know what I mean. It's just it it just yeah. starts there and then it's just like boom, off we go. That's it. Yeah, yeah. He's always done that with his films. Is that he doesn't fill in a huge backstory. He just trusts the audience to kind of um, pick it up as you go along. Yeah. What was the end of 2015, didn't it? Yeah. So it's one of the more recent films we've seen. Um, was it, what was it up against, like, The Revenant and stuff like that, that year, which is... Um, I, I like The Revenant, but maybe I've just got fonder memories of Mad Max because I saw it with you, but I didn't think The Revenant was as good as Mad Max. I think Mad Max was just incredible. You know, it just it grips you by the balls and, you know, doesn't let go. Um Underrated. Charlize Theron doesn't really get spoken about from that film. But I thought she was really good in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm going over things I've said in in the previous podcast, but having seen her in that and a couple of other things, it is odd to watch her go in the Fast and Furious uh, film that she did and be standing behind a desk pushing buttons when you've seen her taking part in some of the best fight scenes and car chases that I have ever seen. Film. I thought she was. I thought she was tremendous. Yeah, you've gone from a well written film and a solid script wearing braids and Vin Diesel going firmly. There's one that I wanted to, wanted to discuss because I wasn't sure whether... No, I'll let you go first, John. You go first. So uh, you mentioned Gravity earlier, and I've put that down as a film we've watched because you'd seen it, and then you took uh, me and Grace, my sister. And yeah. um, I remember you saying, it's only 90 minutes, but you're going to come out and you're going to be emotionally drained. And I, I, was, I was sweating in that film. Yeah. you know, I, the, the one yeah. I wanted to mention was um, not necessarily... Uh, well... Good experience, bad experience, I still can't decide. And that was Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Because it's clearly a terrible film. But it's I, it's one of the memories of watching it with you. Uh, well, yeah, but not for the, the reasons that you would assume when you go and see a film, because it is utter shite. It's there's no there's nothing redeemable about that film. You, the, yeah. you, you, could, you, could, you could be the biggest fan of the DC universe and uh, you cannot come into that film. The film is just terrible. It shows you Bruce Wayne's backstory again. Um, it's just it. The main criticism of superhero films was um, stuff like, you know, too much collateral damage, having like supernatural villains and stuff like that. And Zach Snyder went, no, fuck it. I'm just going to do the complete opposite of what people are looking for. Same year as Civil War came out, which was entirely about dealing with the collateral damage of the actions of um, and superheroes and each other instead of the you know and instead of uniting against the common enemy all that sort of thing yeah yeah but I think the bit that the bit that made it an enjoyable experience for us was when Bruce Wayne has his dream sequence because Batman has those type of superpowers now it's, mm-hmm. it's not just his wealth that gives him his powers but he has that dream sequence where the goblins are you know, following him and they're telling him, beware of Superman and that spurs him on to go and fight Superman and, you know, find a load of kryptonite from the bottom of the Indian Ocean. And in the middle of the goblins, you know, wrestling him and, you know, giving Bruce Wayne a bit of a bad time, I there's a bit of a pause for, you know, there's loud noises, music, there's a bit of a pause and I hear you go, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> what I remember is that in some, some part of my reaction to that scene had you laughing so hard that you were drowning out film and that's not a quiet film and you went outside to finish laughing because you were worried about disturbing the other punch in the uh, auditorium and so, uh, they, ironically the other people that were probably disturbing my laughter didn't care because they probably fucking hated it as well but yeah that that was a shit film you just audibly went fuck off and I was pissing myself laughing to the point that I don't remember the following five minutes of that film because I had to go outside and to go for a piss yeah it wasn't for cinem- cinematic value terrible for comedic value watching with a family member who absolutely hated it, 100%, 10 out of 10, would watch again. Tooth. I've got three more films on my best list, and then we can get into the worst, because the worst right. is, you know. So I have one that we saw, like, three months ago, which was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't think it's anything near what Tarantino's best film is, especially given that um, how much I like Django Unchained, even though I was too young to see it when it came out in the cinema. I didn't see Hatefully in the cinema, but I did enjoy it when it came out. And obviously, yeah. I was too young for *Inglorious*. That was the first Tarantino film that I'd seen in the cinema, and yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was totally different to what Tarantino does. It's not as violent, it's not as gory, but it was it was it was doing really good performances across the board, especially from Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. I think that performance in *Once Upon a Time in Hollywood* is better than what he won for *The Revenant*. And I'd say not on a par with *Wolf of Wall Street* because *Wolf of Wall Street* is a very good performance. Um, 
But yeah, I Leonardo DiCaprio could have easily have won an Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in my opinion. Um, I, I mean, I, I go along with that, you know, how good his performance was. I think what I liked about his performance is that it's it's always quite easy to emotionally connect with someone who's on the way down, struggling with that and struggling with who he is and, and all of those things. And he did a really nice job of still trying to perform and still trying to have a career, even though his best days are behind him. And you kind of, you kind of felt for him while he was going through all that. And I, you know, more so than some of the Wolf of Wall Street, where you don't really need to feel any need to sympathise him with any at any point, you know? Yeah, because he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I really liked it. And the final 15 minutes of that film are pure chaos. It's bonkers, and I love it. It just... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, uh, I've got good, good memories of that, A, because we went to see it together. B, I think it might be the last thing I went to see in the cinema before lockdown, because for the first three months of this year... There was just so much else going on. We didn't really get out to see anything. Um, so, you know, so I do look back and like that. And I mean, look, here's, here's what I think about Tarantino. is I went into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood knowing that it would be long and that there would be bits that I would have preferred him to skip past. But I just sort of went, look, he's Tarantino. This is what he does. Just accept, accept it and enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? And I did. I did genuinely enjoy it, knowing that he would spend a lot of time reproducing you know, TV shows that he loved when he was when he was young and everything, and just go look. He's Tarantino. He does that. I thought I thought Brad Pitt was excellent as well. I thought Brad Pitt was really good in you know in the part that he played. And he's only made a few genuinely unentertaining films altogether, Tarantino, and he's always good to watch. Yeah, uh, his his knowledge of the film and TV industry is evident in that film. It is literally his love letter to Hollywood. Yeah, his knowledge. But a nice little segue, because that ties me into my next uh, best film that we saw together. I think this one's going to blindside you, but we went to see Social Network together. Yes, we did. No, when I went to see it, I didn't really get it, because I was 14, maybe 13, 14 at the time. And it mm. is a bit boring. It is about, you know, that lizard who created Facebook. But um, going back on it, it is, it is really well done. And Tarantino himself said recently that it's the best film of the last decade, even though he's wrong and has made better films than that film in the past decade. But no, yeah. I really didn't go. Um, it's interesting. I, I think I'll give, I need to give it another rewatch. But no, it is a good film. It's um, it's an interesting topic to pick. David Fincher does that. He yeah. his projects you can't pick, you can't just, uh, like determine what he's going to do next. Like he does Seven, and then you know he does um, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He does Social Network. Yeah, you can't make his mind up on what genre is, which I think is interesting. But no, I yeah. hands down enjoyed social network. What I what I'd say about David Fincher is that he always does an absolutely superb job of every film he makes. Because his output is so varied, you find yourself more or less interested in the next film that he does, if you see what I mean. Because he'll yeah. do something he's absolutely oh yeah, I love films like that. And David Fincher's doing a film like that. This is gonna be amazing. And then he does um like Benjamin Button didn't really do a lot of that. I can't fault the thing that David Fincher did with that film. It's just not a story I, I found myself particularly interested in watching. Um, Social Network. The one thing about Social Network, again, it's another one I enjoyed watching with you because it was you picking out directors and films and things and, and watching films for more than just, let's just enjoy the next big, like, multiplex thing. It's about, you know, you know, appreciating something like, you know, a David Fincher film. But at the same time, I remember I have a personal annoyance with films based on true stories which mess around with the facts. Um, and yeah. I know that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a thing of mine. I just think, well, why do, you, why do you make up something happened that genuinely didn't happen? But like you, thinking back to that film, I think you got a lot of things absolutely spot on about the rise of Facebook and the kind of person you have to be to, to gain that kind of power and the way the world has changed as a result of, of, of Facebook and everything else. And uh, Jesse Eisenberg's great. Justin Timberlake's great. Andrew Garfield is great. And it's um, surprising what a good job David Fincher could do of a film that has a lot of um, corporate takeover, boardroom discussions and stuff. And yet he made it all really kind of come to life, didn't he? He made it interesting and engaging for something where there's a lot of sitting down and getting in trouble. Yes. Um, yes. For a guy, yeah, I mean, it's wild. It's, I can't believe that that film is still has some relevancy today because Mark Zuckerberg started out as a guy who just wanted to rape girls on campus after he broke up with his girlfriend and now he can rig elections. Yeah. Um, whether, whether he wants to or not, he rigs elections. But no, David Fincher's had a really interesting career. Yeah. He, did you know he's, he's not won an Oscar? Um, which is back to back to no, he hasn't. As a direct, no, I don't, don't think he's won in general. He's been nominated no. twice. Um, just been nominated twice for Benjamin Button and Social Network, which is a travesty given that he. Fight Club and Zodiac. Is, I think Zodiac is Zodiac. his best film. Zodiac. 
was awesome. Um, but yeah, and my last one, I think you know which one it is, is uh, Get Out. Yes. I will never tire of watching Marvin. It's it, it's just so perfectly made, isn't it? It's like a Swiss watch. Everything just fits together. It's like an elegant like country house drama, but it's also a horror thing. It's also a comment on race relations in North America. And it just, even if you're not interested in any of the political context, it is just, you know, he's just captures everything. Like it's got all the lovely musical cues, like the sharp violin that's got you on edge right from the beginning. Bloody brilliant from beginning to end. Love that film. Well, it's crazy. It's still relevant, you know, given everything that's going on in America. And, you know, now there's protests happening in Britain over the stuff that's happened with uh, George Floyd, that you know terrible yeah. tragedy over there. But it's still relevant now. Like even the end, I don't want to spoil the ending to that film because in case someone hasn't seen it, but the ending to that film, because that man is a black person, you think differently about what could have happened to him compared to if he was a white man. There's, there's a, yeah, there's a bit where a police car or a car with a siren that everyone assumed as a police car pops up and there's a look on the white person's face and a look on the black person's face as a result of that car showing up. And, he's, and I remember watching that and going, oh, that's, that's so good. At the same yeah. time as being in the story and gripped and going, oh my God, it's fucked now. At the same time, I was thinking, "Oh, that's that's bloody clever. That is that's that's just so well done." Well, yeah, I just remember sitting there thinking, "Oh, the, he's trying so hard to get out of the circumstances that he's in," and yeah. then you see a police car show up and you see a black guy, you know, and you just think, "Fuck!" Like I was just kind of like, uh, like gutted at that point in the film. I was just like, yeah, oh. "Exactly, exactly right." I mean, I was that, was that, because that was your sister that wanted, that took us to that film, didn't she? Because she's the horror fan. She wanted yeah. to see Get Out, so we went. It was like her turn to choose a film. We went to see it. We took we took my mum and dad, your grandparents, along who aren't big cinema goers, and it was amazing that the, the 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 diversity of the five people that went to see that film um, to all be absolutely wrapped up in it. Yeah, it was just a just a marvel, and did, did it won a um, best original screenplay, but it should have won everything at the Oscars and Globes that year. It was just phenomenal. Daniel Kaluuya was yeah excellent. So that's where we got to in our conversation about our best cinema-going experiences together. Hopefully you enjoyed the break from just listening to my voice. The second part of our conversation discussing our worst experiences will be in part two of this month's podcast, which is available to download now. Sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger there. We're going to break now for an intermission, so that's the end of part one of episode two. Stock up on popcorn, large cups of fizzy drinks and any other snacks you want and get ready to listen to part two at your leisure. I wrote, presented, edited and mixed the podcast. I used Audacity for the recording, editing and mixing and Anchor FM as my podcasting platform and to record the interview with James Adamson. They're very intuitive and user-friendly tools, so anything that sounded good was down to them and anything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. I'll give you a full set of end credits at the end of part two, including some info on the films and features we've discussed this month. See you on the other side. <laughs>